But we're taking a break this week, and we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, you may have guessed it. Our text for this morning is, is the whole Bible. Um, and you should have a couple resources. One is this chart that you can flip through. When I was in college, I made a chart through the Bible to teach it all in one lesson. And uh, so it's up here behind me, but they're going to be up on the PowerPoint as well. So you have these pictures, these pictures, and the pictures on the PowerPoint. It's kind of like Denny's, the menu. It's all pictures, so you don't have to be confused this morning. Um, now, you may be kind of wondering why, why we would do a, a sermon through the whole Bible. And uh, the answer's... Uh, Kind of simple. I mean, in one sense, you'd say, gosh, it's going to be so broad that you wouldn't be able to go into any depth. Why would you do that? Well, I wanted to illustrate that. I think I have a clicker down here. Oh, I better turn it on. Let's see here. Are we up there yet? There we go. Let's see if I can turn. There we go. Now, that's pretty dark. I think you can see it. it's an eyeball. Can you see that? It's an eyeball. Now, if I asked you what can you tell me about that eyeball, you would probably say... Not too much. I mean, it's, it's a dark eye. Maybe you can see that it's kind of hazel green, maybe, and a little bit of white. But that's about all you could tell me because it's, it's so zoomed in. But if I showed you the face that it came from, now what can you tell me about the eyeball? What can you tell me about it? It's a girl eyeball. It's a baby eyeball. It's a happy eyeball. It has another matching eyeball. I mean, you can tell me a lot of things about it now because you can see the part in the whole, right? And I'm going to take away the baby picture because you guys are all staring at it. But it can be that way when we study the Bible. We're usually looking at a part, right? We're zoomed in on a little verse or a little story. And it's hard for us really to understand the fullness of what it means because we need to step back and see the big picture to see where it's sitting, the whole context. And so today, that's what we're going to do. It's kind of like we're flying up in a plane super high in the sky, looking down at all of Bible history it's in the Bible, and looking at it, you can see the beginning, you can see the ending, so we can see uh, the parts in between. Now, um, before we uh, uh, get started uh, in Genesis here, we need to be aware of something, and that is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. If you don't know that, you may have heard that, it's all about Jesus, in Sunday school the answer is always Jesus. It's true, the whole Bible Every bit of it, from beginning to ending, is about Jesus. Um, Jesus made this pretty clear when he was uh, talking to the Pharisees. I don't know if you can read that. That's actually, I should have made that bigger. But when he was talking uh, to the Pharisees, uh, he said this in John 5.39. We're going to be looking at it next week. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. He's talking about their Old Testament scriptures. In Luke 24, he makes the same assumption after his resurrection he meets with the disciples, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says it's all about him. But he's not alone in this. Peter, as he preaches to Cornelius uh, and, and uh, says this in, uh, in Acts 10, to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives Forgiveness of sins through his name. I think that's up there, yeah. Paul in Acts 17 says the same thing. He says, 
As he's reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogues, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. He thinks it's all about Jesus. I could go on with many scriptures that say this, that the Bible, even, you know, the book of Judges and Leviticus, and it's, all, it's about Jesus. Now, a question you should be asking at this point is, how is that true? I mean, if you've read some of those books, they don't mention Jesus. And uh, they don't seem to be talking about Jesus. You read it and you think, well, gosh, they're just talking about, like, food laws here. I mean, how's this about Jesus? Well, I mean, are we just saying that when we say it's all about Jesus, that the Bible ends with Jesus? So in that sense, it's all about Jesus? Are we saying every little detail in the Bible is about Jesus? So, you know, when there are footprints in the sand, the Israel's following, it's like following Jesus. You know, we sort of spiritualize the details. Well, Jesus gives us a little tip on how it's all about him. He says, uh, he says this when he arrives to begin his public ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as he begins his teaching, the first thing Jesus says when he shows up is, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming to pass in him. And he uses all these Old Testament prophecies to say it. And then he spoke and he acted like a king, right? He speaks with authority. He commands the nature. He commands diseases. He raises the dead. He is the king. So the Bible is all about Jesus, and Jesus is all about bringing in the kingdom of God. So here's the theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God in Jesus. This is how the Bible is all about Jesus. It's all about the kingdom of God, which the Old Testament is all about being fulfilled in Jesus. So now we're going to work our way from beginning to ending of the Bible and see how this is true, see how this is, is worked out. So the first box there of the creation, you see all over, that's the creation box. I tried to capture all of creation in my brilliant art. Uh, as you can see, I used kind of geometric shapes because I'm not a good artist. So the first thing the Bible tells us is that God was there, that he existed. In the beginning was God. And that God made everything, the land and the sea, and he divided the land from the sea and the night and the day. He made it all, including us. And we were made, his people, in it in his image, special. So you got God, I put him kind of as a triangle, and then we're kind of in his image as little triangles. You see the pretty deep stuff. Um, so one of my professors in college pointed out that in the creation event, the core elements of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, are there. Basically, if you think about what a kingdom is, a kingdom has to have people, right? Adam and Eve were God's people, his special designed people to know and love and worship him. And they are in God's place. A kingdom has a place, it has boundaries, right? There's a people, they're in a specific place, they're in God's place. His garden kingdom, the, the beautiful garden of Eden where everything is perfect and beautiful, they don't even need clothes because the weather's so good, it's great. There's no sin. It's perfect. And of course we know a kingdom has a ruler and they are under God's rule. We know that from the tree in the garden, right? 
It's that rule, not to take of the tree. And it establishes that God is ruler. In fact, he made everything there, which is another tip, that he's ruler. So you have God's people in God's place under God's rule. You have the kingdom of God, the essentials of his kingdom. And note that it's a very wonderful thing. When man relates rightly to God as they did in the Garden of Eden, submitting to his rule, he's smack dab in the middle of all God's blessing. The Garden of Eden was wonderful. There they were, resting with God in everything that was good. And, and like I said, the goal of it is that rest, right? When you read the creation story, he creates and there's morning and evening, then he creates some more morning and evening, morning and evening, until the seventh day, and then... God rests. They're done. They're resting in all God's blessing, growing and flourishing. But if you've read your Bible, you know that that scene doesn't last because man decides, Adam and Eve, not to trust God. They disobey God. They try to kind of take his place. They want to rule. They want to decide what, what's the nature of, of, of good and, and evil. The Bible calls this sin. And the result of the sin is it separates us from God. It separated them from his holy presence because he can't even look on their rebellion. And they're cast out of the garden, right? In a sense, the kingdom of God is lost. They're no longer his people. They've been cast from his place. And they're rebelling against his rule. All those elements of the kingdom. And they're dying. But there's a glimmer of hope. If you notice, there's a little inset box up there with a kind of a foot about to crush a snake because there's this little verse in Genesis 3.15 that says that God promised that he would send one that would crush the head of the serpent, the one that had tempted them into sin. There's this vague promise of a heel guy who's going to crush that snake, some type of savior figure. Now, after this moment... Adam and Eve and everybody learned their lesson and they were good after that, right? No, that's not what happened. If you know the story, sin had entered the world and things only got worse. In fact, their very son, Cain, killed their other son, Abel, because he was jealous. And death was realized for the very first time. You see, our sin had cut us off from God, the very source of life, like a like a plant or a branch that's been picked off a tree it looks alive but it's fading away and it's as good as dead imagine that moment where Abel's lying there bleeding out and they're seeing the result they're seeing their future everybody's we're dead and things just got worse from there mankind sin didn't stop it just spread as the descendants grew it just spread it spread like wildfire until we get to this verse. It says this, that God looked down and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God decided to do something to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. He was sorry you'd made us. So we know that he sent the flood. The story of Noah. Have you ever thought about that story? It's a reversal of creation moment. Remember at creation where it was, the earth was watery and formless and void? 
And then he divided the the land from the sea. Well, guess what? The water overcomes the earth. It's formless and void again. It's uncreation. It's judgment. But God saved one man and his family, having him build a big, giant boat. And I used to think he saved him because he was like, oh, he's such a good guy, I'm going to save this guy. And I think he probably was the best guy out there. But that's not why God saved him. God saved him because God made a promise that he was going to send a savior to crush the head of that serpent. And God kept his promise and he was gracious. And so they had a fresh start on the earth. Get to start all over again. And of course they get it right this time. It's all great. No. That's not what happened. Because guess what? The problem with sin is it's not out in the world. It's right here. You can destroy the whole world. You leave one man on it. And guess what? It's all back. And it came back with a fury God had commanded his people to go out, the people of the ark to go out and to to, uh, spread and fill the earth. But you know what they did? They decided they had a better idea. They would unite together and they would build a tower. They would establish God's kingdom or their own kingdom. The tower really was a symbolic image of their desire to rule themselves, to be independent of God. And God will have nothing to do with it. We know that he destroys the tower and he confuses their languages. So guess what? They spread out into the different language groups and they fill the earth like God said because he's going to make it happen. But it's a pretty pathetic kind of scene at this point. The garden kingdom is completely a distant memory. Sin has destroyed it. We are no longer God's people by nature cast from his special place, not experiencing his blessing, but experiencing the curse of his just judgment. And that could have been the end of it. If I were God, I would say, that's enough. I gave you a second chance. We're done. But God doesn't do that because he's gracious and he's going to keep his promise. So in time, he comes to a man named Abraham. He's the one with the A on his chest. And Abraham, he comes to Abraham and he makes some promises which involve three elements. I I put up here, he actually makes these promises three times in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17. But I put up a section of Genesis 12 here. This is what it says. He comes to Abraham and he says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He says, I'm going to give you a special land. And I will make you a great nation. I will make out of your descendants my people. Oh, I'm going to bring you into a land. I'm going to give you a people. And he says, and I will bless you. And in fact, when we read the promises in Genesis 17, the same promises, he says he will bless them by being their ruler, by protecting them, by providing for them, by ruling over them. So what we have is a promise to restore his kingdom. Through Abraham, he will make God's people in God's place under God's rule, the kingdom of God. And there's even a little promise at the end that all the nations will be blessed through him. God's people in God's place under God's rule with all the families of the nations blessed. So now we're going to move quickly and we're going to see how this has worked out through the rest of of the Old Testament. We haven't gone very far, right? We're still in the book of Genesis, so we got to move. Well, 
out of Abraham, we have Isaac. And then out of Isaac, we have Jacob, the patriarchs. And then Jacob has 12 sons. That's what the little 12 pieces of the pie there are. And they are the beginning of the descendants, right? The promised people of God. And I've marked out Judah because he's in the line of Christ. And if you look at the chart, you can kind of trace that line. And I've marked out Joseph because he's the one whose brothers sold him into slavery and then he ended up in Egypt and then there was a famine and they were dying and they went down to Egypt and somehow he'd become Pharaoh's right-hand man and he was able to save them by having them come down to Egypt and provide for them. And you know why that's important? Because while they were in Egypt, they began to multiply into a great people. God had promised, I will give you a land and I will, to Abraham, and I will bless your descendants. I will make you a great nation. Well, that begins to happen. Of course, they're miserable because they are eventually enslaved, aren't they? They grow into such a, a great number of people that a later Pharaoh is, is threatened and he has them enslaved. So God raises up Moses to lead them out and to destroy Pharaoh's armies. And he brings them to Mount Sinai after he's led them out. And at Mount Sinai, they're given the law, the Ten Commandments, so they know how to relate to God. Remember, before that, they're just kind of a nomadic people. But now, they're learning about his character, who he is. And he gives them the tabernacle, so they learn how to worship him, how to approach him. They see that he's holy that their sins need to be atoned for. They're learning how to know and how to relate to God. He's making them his people. In Exodus 19.6, it's a little special note. God says that his people, if they obey him, will be a kingdom of priests to the nations. This is how all the nations are going to be blessed. Then Moses leads them into the promised land, doesn't he? Well, he leads them to the edge of it. But there's a whole generation. Oh, this is the, the promise of the kingdom. And there's a whole generation that then wanders in the desert because they didn't trust God to enter the land. They were afraid of the giants that were in the land. So God has reestablished his land, his people, right? He's brought them to his special place, but they're afraid. So they wander in the desert for 40 years until that whole generation that doubts passes away. And then God's people get to enter the land because he raises up a new ruler named Joshua. So which book, which book are we in now? Joshua, good. You guys are on it. And Joshua leads them in battle in the land and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and the giants flee and God makes the sun stand still in the sky. All these miracles to help them conquer the land. And the second element of God's promise to Abraham is accomplished. God's people are now in God's place. Things are good. But over time, they don't go so well because as we read on, we find out that God's people didn't completely obey him. They were supposed to go in and clear out the land. He said, clear out all the land of all the pagan inhabitants because if you don't, you're going to get involved in their religions, you're going to intermarry with them, and you're going to fall away, and you're going to come under my judgment. You're going to be conquered by them. And that's exactly what begins to happen while they're in the land. They get conquered in their own land, and that begins the period of the judges. 
That's the book of Judges. And you see Gideon, Samson. I put Ruth in there because God used her during this time as well to save his people. During this time, they get conquered by their enemies and they cry out to God. They start to suffer and they cry out to God to help us. And he sends a judge, a savior that saves them. They do good for a while and then they begin to intermix with the people and intermarry. They get conquered and they cry out and they suffer. They cry out to God. So it's sin, supplication, salvation, sin, supplication, suffering, salvation. This cycle that goes on and on where God keeps sending these judges, saviors, to save them. Finally, the people have this idea. They say, you know what? We need a king. Like the other nations that keep conquering us, they have kings. We need a king. God says, no, you don't. He'll turn your hearts from me. I'm your ruler. No, we need a king. They argue with him. Finally, God says, okay. And he sends Samuel. He's the purple one. He's the first kind of prof, priest and prophet. And he picks the kings. This is the time of the United Kingdom. He picks the first king, Solomon. Solomon, I've drawn there with half a heart, kind of. He was kind of half-hearted for God. But David, the middle one, he's a special king. Because God made a promise to him in 2 Samuel 7.13 that through his line would come God's forever king. A king whose throne would never end a king who would be God's very son. You see, that vague promise back in Genesis 15, I mean 3.15, of that one who would crush the serpent, now it's starting to take shape. Who's it going to be? It's going to be a king, a forever king, a king who will be the very son of God, and he's going to come in the line of David. So guess what? When Solomon was born, what did people think? Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the son of God king who's going to be the forever king. And you know what? Everything in Solomon's life looked that way. You ever read about Solomon's kingdom? It was incredible. All the people were in the land. They were experiencing all the blessing. They were a great nation. It says as the sands of the seashore, just like the promise of the descendants. And they were resting with God. God, they built a temple and his presence came down and rested with them like he did in the garden. They have his sustenance, his protection, his abundance. And they are under God's rule. His divine king, Solomon, is ruling, representing God to his people, ruling over them. They're God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom fulfilled in Solomon's reign. In fact, Genesis 8.56 says every promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Solomon's kingdom. So why doesn't the Bible just end there? God has fulfilled. He's brought back his garden kingdom. Well, we know the Bible doesn't end there. It ends, doesn't end there because this kingdom doesn't last. Because Solomon, like his people, is a sinner. He sinned against God in many ways. His great physical kingdom could not stand up against the sin problem, the spiritual problem that separates us from God, because sin was even in him. And so we find that the kingdom is divided. It's not long that the Assyrians come through in 722 B.C. and they conquer the ten northern tribes of the kingdom and completely wipe them out. There's only two left. What's going to happen? Well, the Babylonians come through in 536, 
And they capture those last two tribes and they take them back to Babylon and it seems hopeless. How is God ever going to keep his promise to Abraham to bring in his kingdom? It was supposed to be a forever kingdom. It looked so good under Solomon. But now it's all lost. Well, eventually, in the last book of the Old Testament, we find out that uh, God, using his pagan king Cyrus, allows those who have been in captivity in Babylon, those last two tribes, to return to the land and to rebuild their temple. And they rebuild the temple and they start rebuilding the wall and the prophets are there and they're speaking. But the people remember the old temple and they say this, they weep. This temple is pathetic. This new city is pathetic. It's not like the old. And you know what the prophets do? The prophets, I always tell little kids when I teach them, I said, prophets stand like this. They point back to the past and they point forward. And the prophets pointed back and said that kingdom of Solomon, that beautiful physical kingdom, that was a shadow. That temple was a shadow of the true temple to come. Right? That land was a shadow of the true rest to come, the true land. They point in each direction. And they point the people forward. They speak of a kingdom to come where the law will be written on people's hearts. Where the king is God's Son, real son, yet he's a suffering servant. He's not a sinner like Solomon. And God's people will actually involve all the nations. And then what happens? Well, nothing. For 400 years, nothing. The prophets are saying, it's coming. And then Galatians tells us in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And Matthew, when he introduces Jesus, starts with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, Jesus is the son of the promises. The kingdom promises that go all the way back to Abraham and through David... And if you think I'm stretching it, read Galatians 3.16. In fact, I'm going to read it to you because he could, Paul couldn't say it any clearer. He says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. He says the promises that were made to Abraham, they're ultimately only made to Jesus Christ because he fulfills them. And then Jesus, as he comes on the scene for his public ministry, the son of Abraham, the son of David, says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm bringing it in now. Repent and believe. The time is now for God's people to be gathered into God's place and to come under his rule. You kind of go, well, how does this happen? Does does Jesus, when he comes, say, oh, I raise an army up and and conquer and start his kingdom and and conquer the Romans and, you know, make a, a kingdom with some walls and say, come into my place and I'll rule over you? Is that how he brings in the kingdom? Well, no, we know he doesn't do that. He does something a little different. This is the picture way over here now. This is the picture of the Gospels. Jesus came and became one of us, born into a manger. He lived as a true person of God, never sinning, never breaking the law. 
He was never separated from God by his sin, thus he didn't deserve judgment, but then he went to the cross and he took all God's judgment. He died our death in our place, taking on our sin. He was separated from God for us, and then he rose conquering sin and is seated on his throne in heaven as king. Jesus is reigning right now as king. He's on his throne. He rose to his throne. And he's offering reconciliation to God for those who will believe. This is how he brings in the kingdom of God. It's in him. Let me explain. When you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you become one of God's people. Jesus was the true person of God. Where Adam failed, where the Israelites failed, where Solomon failed, he didn't. In him, as we place our trust in him, we come back into relationship with our Father God, just like in the garden. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, anybody in Christ. We become people of God. And when you come to Jesus, you also come to God's place. You see, God's place in the garden and, and in the promised land was that place of rest, of resting in him, where they could commune with him. Jesus says, come to me, who, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Hebrews 4 tells us that whoever believes in Jesus has entered into the rest. God's place of rest, it was about his presence. That's why the temple was at the center. That's where they could be forgiven and made right with God. Jesus shows up and says, tear this temple down or raise it up in three days. He is the place where we meet God, where our sins are atoned for, where we are at rest with God. And when we come to God, come to Jesus, we come under God's rule. He's God's divine king. He's now ruling on his throne forever. To submit to God's rule is to bow the knee to Jesus, and we enter into his kingdom, the kingdom of God in Jesus all about him all the promises of God all of the Old Testament it's fulfilled in Jesus even the promise given to Moses in Exodus 19 about God's people being a blessing to all the world a kingdom of priests how does that come true in Jesus well that's the book of Acts isn't it where God sends his spirit down Jesus does the spirit of Christ And we begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus and his work on the cross and thus bring his people in. Just mediating the good news. Thus Peter calls Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2 a royal priesthood, right? And then we have, of course, I'm just going to quickly finish this up. We have the book of Acts, which is the explanations about how to live now. As people have entered God's kingdom, Jesus is reigning But his kingdom is not fully realized, right? He's going to return. And in the meantime, how are we to live? That's what the epistles are about. How we live now as we've entered into God's kingdom. Why doesn't he just bring it all in fully now? The Bible says because he's waiting patiently for all, that all should repent and we're to go out and proclaim the gospel. We're to live it by faith that more may enter in to his kingdom. But this time won't last forever. The one that's bending around the curve, I should have started my chart a little farther that way. That's the final. The book of Revelation. 
tells us that Jesus is coming back and the reality of his reign. It's like the sky is pulled back and we're shown that Jesus is reigning in heaven and that every knee will bow. And his people will enter the full consummation of his kingdom, of his glory. It's the Garden of Eden in full bloom. That's heaven. But those who have rejected him and remain in their sin before God will be cast from his presence forever. That's the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of Jesus and how he brings in the kingdom of God. There's just a couple applications I want to point out that are important. The first is this. It's all ours. This book, all of it is Christian scripture. All of it is to teach us about Christ and how to live as his followers. Habakkuk, Judges, Leviticus, Numbers, the periods of the kings and the priests, they're written for us. That's what that first Peter passage I had us read today. They were writing for us, ultimately. Therefore, we have to read them in light of Christ. You always have to read those scriptures in light of Christ. Secondly, not only is the scripture all ours, but it's all done. It's been finished in Christ. He fulfilled it all. We don't need to keep re-sacrificing some Christ in some symbolic way. He did it. The Mormons want to build a new temple, or they did build a temple. No, Jesus is the temple. He's the place where you meet God. We don't need a new temple. It's done. He fulfilled the temple. He fulfilled the sacrifice. He fulfilled the priesthood. It's all been done in Christ. There's no sequel. There's no second revelation. It's done. We receive him by faith alone because it's all his work. And finally, if Jesus is ushered in the kingdom of God and he's on his throne reigning, there's only one thing to do for everybody to do. What is that? Repent. Bow the knee to the king because he reigns. When you bow the knee to the king, you become part of his kingdom. You become God's people in his place, under his rule, and receive all his blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your story, your son's story that becomes ours. Thank you for pursuing sinners, all of us, for all history by your grace. Thank you for sending your son, our king. Thank you for bringing in your kingdom. May it be now on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.